Yo, what's up? Dr. Swole here, MD bodybuilder, back with another episode on Swole Radio. Today I'm joined again by Dr. Eric Helms, which we're very lucky to have. He's one of the founders of 3DMJ, a pillar in the science-based bodybuilding community, and also conspicuously known for ownership of several great monuments in Egypt. <laughs> How are you doing, Eric? Well, the, the legal battle continues as to whether or not we actually get to claim uh, ownership over the Great Pyramids because I wrote my book, but um, I'm hopeful. So uh, I'm, I'm in a good mood. I'm doing well. I'm glad to be back on. <laughs> Let the naysayers speak. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the haters can have their voice, but uh, ultimately when I'm sitting on top of the pyramids, which would probably be very uncomfortable, um, pointy. Uh, they'll understand the truth. So. so today we're going to be talking about a very fun topic and that is exercise selection. I think this is something that never gets old. And I think it's interesting how I feel that um, your interest in exercise selection kind of goes through a couple of uh, waves as you progress in experience, I think. Beginners are often very obsessed with exercise selection. You know, what's the best exercise to build your chest or your biceps? And then a lot of people, when they get into the science-based sphere, they kind of drop it and they say, oh, you know what? It doesn't matter. And you know what matters? All that matters is volume or something like that. Mm. And then you kind of become more experienced and you really start seeing how you can make minute changes to movements and your programming and really feel it in your body. Um, so today we're going to be delving in deep into this really fun topic and answering a lot of frequently asked questions. So I just wanted to start off, Eric, maybe by getting your open perspective on criteria that you like to use when choosing the best exercises? Yeah, I think, um, I think I like the way you, you, you framed it and that we often get focused on like the programming variables, which are relatively stable across exercises. And I think that can have people think, well, then exercise selection is, is, is a of lesser tier of importance um, or that it's not important, but it's one of those things where like that's an accurate assumption. If you have a good spread of exercises and you have good technical execution of the exercises, then all that's true. But that's that those are assumptions that I think um, probably shouldn't be made um, in all cases. There's a lot of people who mm -hmm. don't necessarily have access to everything or um, aren't able to perform certain exercises. So yeah, I think from a bodybuilding perspective, uh, like you, you need a fair amount of variety uh, if you are trying to maximize muscle growth in all the various heads and muscle groups. Um, and while the general principles hold true, regardless of which exercise you're dealing with, eh, with some, some caveats, um, it's still really important because if you are not able to execute an exercise properly, um, you can, you can develop kind of like these consistent weak points in your physique, which are relatively obvious and easy to fix, despite mm -hmm. the fact, like you're doing a lot of uh, things right in terms of your programming, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's kind of my preamble, I guess, but yeah. Yeah. So I guess I can, maybe I'll share a little bit of my own perspectives, um, and then have, see what, uh, you think and maybe presenting your own um so i kind of have a starting off i kind of have just a very simple five step model when looking at uh, how people can choose exercises for themselves and so the first um criteria is that the target muscle should be the limiting factor in the movement basically just saying that this your exercise should target the muscle that you're trying to build. And the next one is that the exercise should give you an adequate stress over the muscle's range of motion. 
which I think will um, is range of motion is definitely something that um, a lot of people uh, like to uh, miss out on at the beginning or when they're not well versed in in technique and that. And then the next one is how um, amenable the exercise is to progressive overload. And mm -hmm. the way I like to have people think about it is if I took this exercise, could I lift in a heavy rep range? And, you know, like, could I load it up to something like a six to eight rep range and get to within a one or two reps in reserve? And I think that is kind of a nice way of uh, just choosing exercises that will really give you a high ceiling in terms of overloadability over time. So you're going to be able to run that over time. It's going to give you a good challenge and relatively safe as well. You know, so I think if someone's trying to do, you know, like a two RM on, on like a single, single arm reverse cable press down or something, um, it just <clears throat> might not be ideal. And the next one also relates to progressive overload, and that is looking at microloadability. And I think that microloadability is underrated in bodybuilding. I think it's something I always think about when I'm designing exercises and de designing my program is how am I going to look ahead down the line and structure this program so that I can apply a very precise overload or at least see that overload happen. So this is where things like barbell exercises and dumbbell exercises really shine because you can precisely control the amount of weight that you're adding. And this gives you a couple of advantages where um, part of it is just being able to handle small increments in progress. So obviously for beginners, they might be able to add weight every session or very, very frequently. But as you become more advanced, even something like a five pound increment becomes a lot. And the last one, the last criteria is, does the exercise just feel good? And I think this is a fairly broad thing, um, comprises of mind muscle connection, which I think is important in itself. But a lot of it is just kind of how an exercise grooves for someone. And I think it's maybe a little bit hard to define and take some experience for that. But I think there's a lot of individual individual variation in what exercises will work for different people. And a lot of it is just trial and error and people just need to find what feels good for them. What are kind of your thoughts? Those are all great. Um, you know, when, when I, some of the things I start with when I'm just going, all right, well, what's, what's the basic skeleton of the structure of, of where we slot in exercises for all the various stuff we've talked about at this point, you know, your volume, intensity, and frequency is starting with basically six cardinal categories of movements, which independent to some degree of your, your level of experience, uh, weak points or strong points, even competitive division, except in a few spots where certain muscle groups might be totally covered up and you could omit a few of these, but um, just kind of like a general hypertrophy program um, should probably consist of a horizontal push and pull, a vertical push and pull, some type of hip hinge, and then some type of squat. So when you do that, you've pretty much got every muscle group trained, at least to some degree, um, through, through compound movements. Um, and then from there, that's where you can kind of start filling in gaps because it's not, per I mean, that'd be a good like hypertrophy program, but it wouldn't be a great bodybuilding program in and of itself because mm -hmm. uh, there are a few gaps. So just for clarity, when I say horizontal push and pull, I mean like a bench in a row as an example, vertical push and pull could be like an overhead press and pull down. Uh, a hinge could be a pretty, I, I have pretty broad classification categories here that could be an RDL, a good morning, could even be a hip thrust. Uh, or a weighted back extension. Um, and then for a squat, same thing, kind of broad categories. That could be a squat, or that could be anything really that combines simultaneous knee and hip extension. So leg press, lunges, hack squat, front squat, low bar, high bar, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, 
And then you just need to think about, you know, where do I distribute those based on kind of my, my quote unquote split, uh, or how do I distribute them across the days if I maybe I'm doing a more full body-esque approach or, or maybe not full body, but I'm just not limiting which muscle group to train on which day, then all right, I might not have my leg press on the day right after I do hip hinging or something like that. Um, so anyway, uh, from there, then you need to think about, okay, well, what are all the other commands I need as a bodybuilder? And we know that when we're doing simultaneous hip and knee extension, rectus femoris doesn't, doesn't seem to be trained as well. So we probably need some isolation work or uh, quadricep emphasis that allows the rec fem to work. Some type of knee flexion movement. So we get the, uh, the bicep femoris short head in there. We need some direct calf work. Most people are probably going to need some direct arm work. Um, and you may or may not need like direct, direct ab work, some more trap dominant stuff, et cetera. And you've got what ends up being a pretty complete program. Um, mm-hmm. And then of course, like, like I think you were bringing up or, 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 and we've mentioned is that within all the various categories, you have to consider everything you talked about. Uh, and then to your last point about kind of having a quote unquote feel for it. I think that really shouldn't be underestimated. Um, there was a cool study done uh, by Rausch and colleagues. I want to say 2017 or 2018. And it's specifically on the topic of auto-regulated exercise selection. And what they did is they had these two, two groups, one trained, well, both trained three days a week, but in the auto-regulated group for each of the muscle group categories, they could choose between three exercises on any given day. So for like their quad selection, they could do uh, like leg press squats or leg extension, their choice, all three days, same movement, all three days, different movements, switch it up week to week, whatever the heck they wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And in the other group, they had a fixed order. So quads on one day was leg press, one day it was squats, one day it was leg extensions. And they had a similar thing going on for back, chest, shoulders, you name it. The important piece here was that these were relatively experienced resistance trained individuals. And the group that auto-regulated it and selected what they wanted that felt best on the day for a given muscle group, they actually got stronger and got a little bit bigger than the non-auto-regulated group. That's not to say that auto-regulation is magic, but it says that, like you said, with experience, you start to get a feel for which uh, exercises you can perform well, feel safe on, uh, get a good solid mind-muscle connection, uh, and, and have that overloadability, as you talked about. So I think that's something that uh, should be emphasized um, and is something that will change over time. And you'll notice like if you watch certain athletes train, they, they select certain exercises. Um, sometimes they get dogmatic and like tell everyone to do that. But I think the only thing you can really tell if you look across a cross section of a lot of bodybuilders is that there is some variation, which means mm-hmm. you're probably going to be a little different too, because we all have different lever lengths. We all have different muscle attachment sites to some degree. Um, there's a lot of variety in what it is to be human. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that is um, really uh, cool to think about, especially with that study coming out and starting to validate some of these things where, um, you know, old school bodybuilders would just say, you got to feel it, bro. Yep. Um, Guess- and just even more to that point, we, we just coming out in the, the forthcoming mass issue, um, Greg Knuckles reviewed, reviewed an article where they looked at EMG differences uh, between and within individuals and looking at Nordic hamstring curls, which are like the eccentric portion of a, of a hamstring curl uh, where your feet are fixed and your, your torso moves. And also, I believe it was uh, RDL. So basically a knee flexion and a hip extension um, dominant exercise. And while the group differences were pretty solid, like, oh, this one is a little more dominant for these hamstring exercises. And they broke it down by semi-tendinosis, semi-membranosis, bicep femoris. Uh, and these, uh, are more dominant in this exercise within individuals. Some people were flipped and some people were, were much more dominant in one than the other, uh, which gives an indication that, yeah, we can follow these broad guidelines, but hundred percent. If you're someone who's like, yeah, I never feel my muscle group in, in X exercise. Uh, and it's also, here's a caveat that I think a lot of novices and beginners miss. It's an exercise where you should be focusing on the mind muscle connection, like not a barbell squat. <laughs> like I don't think about feeling my quads on a barbell squat. Yeah. Um, when, when you have like a free weight, multi-joint technical movement, the focus should be on technical execution of the movement. Um, 
However, when you've got something where the technical execution is relatively controlled, um, like maybe you're doing a like a heel heel elevated uh, like Smith machine squat and really trying to control your eccentric tempo, pause in the hole and come back up and focus on your quads. Yeah, that's totally fine. Focus on your quads. Um, or obviously something like a bicep curl or a calf raise, etc. cetera. Uh, isolation movements and movements that have been modified so that it is emphasizing how it feels. Uh, that's certainly valid, um, but you wouldn't take that approach on all movements, in my opinion. A lot of the times it is just about locking it in, having it be biomechanically correct and, and training it. So anyway, for movements where it's appropriate to be focused on the mind-muscle connection, you're going to get people who experience pretty different things um and that's not necessarily means that you're doing anything wrong it, it just means that you're a little different and it may not be the best exercise for you or you need to practice it more so yeah mm -hmm. yeah and going off of that when you talk about how you know some people just don't feel an exercise in a certain muscle it's just wondering in terms of how you would go about evaluating that in a specific individual case so um, I guess one set of uh, criteria I'd like to use is kind of on a temporal basis while you're performing the exercise, do you feel disruption in that muscle? Like, do you feel pain? Do you feel the burn, I guess? And then mm -hmm. on a slightly longer frame throughout the workout, are you feeling a pump from that exercise? And then on a longer scale, looking at the next day or later, are you sore in the target muscle? I don't know if you have any other tips for people. I think those are good, um, but they don't apply to all muscle groups. You, I mean, you, we've probably experienced sure. it sometimes, especially as, as you're more experienced, certain muscle groups just don't get that much of a pump, you know? Um, like I would love to get a lat pump like I get on my, you know, like my biceps or my chest. Um, but if you think about just the, the amount of area that is contracting, um, and you know, like how much, you know, vascular occlusion or, or, or I should say, uh, yeah, vascular occlusion is really happening across the whole lat to create any kind of isolated pump on these movements. Um, well, not quite as much. I get it sometimes, don't get me wrong. I've certainly had lat pumps, but it's never as consistent as other muscle groups. Um, you also have to think about some muscle groups are just le much less likely to get trained at long muscle lengths. Um, if you think about the exercise that they're performed in. Um, so they typically just don't get that sore, you know, um, like I, it's rare to get trap soreness for me, I find. Um, and, uh, so yeah, th th those are small caveats. And then you also have to think about how long have you been doing the exercise? How much variety do you have? And what's your current training frequency? Cause if you've been at it for years and you consistently do an exercise and you do it three times per week, you're probably ain't getting that sore. You know, you might get the pump. So there, there is certainly, I think those are, that's good general advice, but I do think people should be aware that certain exercises are probably just not good candidates for that assessment. And you kind of just have to then unfortunately go by, did you feel it? You know, which, which is super mm -hmm. subjective, but, um, like, like you can do things like, uh, I'm going to take this set to, 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 to failure. Um, even though that's not necessarily what I would always do um, and see what fails. Cause I think a lot of the times when you're not feeling the target muscle, it goes back to what you said is your first criteria is, is the, 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 the target muscle, the limiting factor, mm -hmm. is it, is it the limiter? And a lot of the times on one of these compound movements, especially where this typically gets people because on isolation movements, I find on isolation movements, most of the time, if you don't think you're feeling it, you will if you go to failure. You just realize that maybe you had different expectations or maybe you were just further away from failure when overloading as much as you thought. Um, mm -hmm. Like uh, I've, I've yet to meet someone who can't feel their quads in a leg extension, you know? Yeah. So, um, however, not feeling your, your lats on a lat pull down, super common, you know? Um, so I think when you have someone like that, push to failure they can go oh like i got a really intense burn in like my terrace major and my biceps gave out well, okay now that gives some insight on what we should do let's try a thumb over grip let's get you some straps uh let's do uh you know neutral or or palm over grip uh and let's try to really emphasize thinking about pulling from our elbows and then you can even have a, 
a workout partner do like uh, touching the muscle group that you're trying to train to help bring a more attentional focus to it. And you can start to train through that. Um, so a lot of those cues are things that you might only pick up over time um, or, or with the assistance from a, a pretty experienced lifter. Um, but yeah, so in some cases, I think, well, first off, I like those rules or, or those guidelines for, for when you can feel a muscle group better. But I think sometimes they won't necessarily apply in certain training constructs or for certain movements or muscle groups. And in those cases, it becomes a matter of um, pushing yourself to where you should see failure occur in that muscle group. And then if it does, okay, maybe it wasn't as bad as I thought, but if it doesn't, then what do I do about it? And that's going to be context dependent. Mm -hmm. Speaking of which, Eric and I have been designing a special exercise that trains the entire upper body called the <laughs> panacea row. I love it. You just have to essentially row the world and, and, <laughs> and the world will respond to you. Yeah. Oh, man. <clears throat> Yeah. So yeah, I really like that. Um, some really, really applicable caveats to think about, uh, especially when people are like, yeah, but I, you know, don't necessarily feel it, it in them, you know, all the time in certain exercises, especially, and especially if they're training with higher frequencies or have been using a movement for a while, getting a little deeper and asking some, uh, other questions about general uh, exercise selection. Common topic people will ask about is compound versus isolation movements. How do you like to rationalize sort of how to incorporate them and how much of each? Yeah, I think there, there, there's a there's a give and take here, you know, because uh, like you talked about, I want to make sure the the target muscle is the limiting factor in, in, in an exercise. Well, not all exercises just have one target muscle, right? So good old compound exercises are efficient from a perspective of they train multiple muscle groups at the same time. That squat pattern is a pretty good glute and quadricep exercise. Um, you know, that, that, that hinge pattern is a pretty good glute and ham exercise, right? And, and, and uh, extensor exercise. And uh, like a lat pulldown is pretty good for a, num a number of muscles in the back as well as your, your biceps, right? So that is a, I say that's a feature, not a bug. You know, I think with compound exercises, um, we're looking to, to get the most bang for our buck in terms of time invested and train multiple muscle groups at the same time. Mm -hmm. And in the, the limited data we have, which isn't a lot, it suggests that you can get very similar rates, rates of hypertrophy, especially in untrained individuals with doing compound rather than isolation exercises. Um, however, there's also data, the data leans in favor of for trained individuals, you probably need to do some isolation work when you've got a synergist rather than a prime mover, um, if, if you really wanna to try to maximize its hypertrophy. And again, this is a lacking area of data. Uh, it, it's difficult, we don't have a whole lot of bodybuilders comparing you know, rows and pull downs to curls, but we have some data on this area and that's kind of where the data lean. Um, hmm. So I think the way to think of it is that uh, compound exercises, um, especially free weight compound exercises, uh, they require a whole lot of work from muscle groups that you would not expect. Um, the complexity of uh, functional anatomy is much more than most bodybuilders acknowledge or think about. You know, mm -hmm. um, we generally think of a couple of exercises or sorry, a couple of muscle groups work during an exercise. Like uh, for chest, we think that's, I'm sorry, for bench, that's chest, triceps and, and your front delts. And it's like, yeah, that, that's, that's basically true. Um, but we forget things like, oh, the long head of the triceps is a, is a weak shoulder extensor. Oh, the biceps are actually a weak shoulder flexor, right? Oh, in, in, the, in a deep squat position, our adductor now acts as the primary hip extensor. So it's far more complicated than we often give it, give it credit. Um, and on top of that, we have co-activation. We have potential, you know, synergist dominance, which might just be normal for, for someone versus someone else. You know, that's when mm -hmm. the, the target muscle group is working uh, not as hard as one of the synergists. So, um, but, but it, nonetheless, like 
there's a lot of muscle groups that are acting as stabilizers. Uh, some are activating in, in a way that you would think, well, hold on, that, that's the antagonist. Wouldn't that be counteracting this movement? Well, you, it's just stabilizing. It's just staying active to some degree. Uh, we don't think about what's being isometrically controlled. So I think if you were to try to design a program that consisted almost completely of isolation exercises and targeting specific muscle groups, that almost takes a certain level of, um, I would say, arrogance to where you think mm -hmm. you can move better than, than, your, than your body knows how to. And it almost puts this kind of muscles first uh, mentality when that's really not the way humans move. Hmm. Um, like uh, an example of this is when you look at the data on performance and internal versus external cues. So like when you think of contracting a muscle to move something and improve performance, it typically reduces power, right? Or reduces force output. It's like the idea of thinking like, all right, I'm going to punch somebody. So I am going to extend my tricep and then extend my hip at the same time. Like, like that, that's a very foreign way of thinking. Like our body is meant to, uh, to just execute for us, that the muscle, muscular control is somewhat subconscious, especially in a, in a well-learned skill. And we produce more force that way, thinking about uh, instead of extend my tricep, thinking of I'm going to try to punch through that back, that cue would typically result in, in greater force output. And this has been shown in multiple studies, right? Mm -hmm. so, um, so anyway, I, I guess what, what I'm getting at is that uh, anatomy and functional anatomy and what is actually active during movement, far more complex than we realize, quite individual. And there's a lot of muscles contracting almost any time we, we move or do something. So the approach of kind of those you know, six cardinal movements that I mentioned, the horizontal and vertical push and pull and the hinge and squat, that basically says, all right, I've got those there because a whole lot's going on in them when I do them. Um, and then I can evaluate like, is my physique lacking based on, you know, either my anatomical structure, like, you know, like for example, I have narrow clavicles. It doesn't matter how big my delts are. I could always use bigger, uh, you know, delts and lats because of that. So, but maybe you actually are more, you know, skeletally built for, for, for bodybuilding. And you notice that there are certain muscle groups that are not getting developed by these core compounds. And you go, all right, well, I need to, uh, well, my lats need more work. I'm doing rows and pull downs. Maybe I need to do like a lat push down or like find one of those mythical magical pullover machines, uh, the Nautilus ones, which are amazing. <laughs> um, so you can start to kind of fill in the gaps and, and you need a little bit of understanding of anatomy to do that. So compound exercises are great because they're time efficient and because they train a whole lot of stuff and some things you're not even realizing. Um, I think this is one of the reasons why direct abdominal work never quite pays off as much as we want it to, just because the abs are, act as a stabilizer so often they're getting enough of a, an overlapping isometric stimulus from so many exercises uh, that then when you start doing direct ab work, you're like, I think they grew, I don't know. I didn't die it down. I can't even tell. Mm -hmm. um, same thing with like traps, you know, like um, I haven't noticed a whole lot of putting shrugs in or out of programs over the years. And they've just kind of fallen by the wayside in my programming. Like I just don't care anymore because they don't seem to do anything um, for, and that's not just my, my own personal anecdote. That's with like hundreds of bodybuilders. Um, so there are a couple of exercises I will put in if someone gets neurotic and asks for it, but that I don't really think matter because they get hit in so many other uh, compounds. So, um, yeah, kind of also like front delts, for example, you know, they get hit in any press you ever do. And I, I re rarely think someone without like a, you know, a shoulder issue or an overhead pressing issue needs to be doing like front raising, uh, for example. So that's kind of the argument for compounds, the argument against them to kind of, you know, straw man or steel man, my position now hmm. to look at it from the other way is that because you're training more muscle at once, uh, the fatigue per rep is higher than it would be for an isolation movement. And sometimes you may not feel that fatigue is worth it. Like, okay, so I'm getting some extra intercostal growth here, or uh, yeah, I'm getting some isometric abdominal work here, but why wouldn't I do an isolation movement? Uh, and I'm also crushing myself with this axial loading. Like, wouldn't it be just easier to hop on the leg press? Sometimes the answer is yes, you know, certainly. So I think while if you took a look at a power lifter in the off season, far from a competition, they would have a fair amount of volume on their main lifts. 
and then some accessories and certainly more accessories uh, working on hypertrophy than they would when they were close to competition. They'd probably be dropped out in favor of doing more heavier loading and the overall you know, linear nature of dropping volume to allow recovery and focusing on strength. Mm-hmm. But a bodybuilder would, would, would look even less uh, compound dominant. Um, we would not necessarily put, just because I mentioned those six compound cardinal exercises on a pedestal to where they're 80% of everything you did, um, they would maybe still be a dominant factor, but they're kind of given equal weight. Like you could make the argument that a calf raise is just as important as, as a row for a bodybuilder because that muscle group is judged on stage, you know, um, maybe not quite as important because the row does a few more things, but I think you get my point in that, um, the bodybuilders program always needs to be relatively balanced between muscle groups. So that means that like you might have three sets of squats in a week and then another, you know, like type of squat pattern and then some isolation work for quads and two different exercises in a week. While that powerlifter equivalent, anytime they come in to train their quads, you know, there's going to be a squat pattern involved of some type. And they're not even thinking about training the quads. They're thinking mm-hmm. about training the squat and then their accessories train the quads to hopefully help their squat. Mm-hmm. It's a different perspective. I think you need a good foundation of compound exercises, but they should be an equal or similar proportion compared to everything else you're doing when you look at the overall program and the total volume distribution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, those are really good points. And I like how you point out that you know, exercise selection is a lot more complex and does require knowledge of anatomy where having those six basic movements is a really good way of just blanketing everything. when you're starting someone out, just being like, okay, when you're building this program, I want you to think about these movements because they're going to cover a lot of stuff and they're going to cover a lot of ground, but you know, often bodybuilders will just say, you know, I'm training back with this barbell row, like back period when you know there's a lot more that goes into it when you look at the anatomy and you know just the planes of the muscle and the different muscles involved and the back isn't just a one slab of meat that's you know just a yeah a great way to a great way to 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 confuse a bodybuilder who has a very uh, i would say uh simplistic view of muscle groups and organizes their training as to like you know chest back shoulders legs arm two days off kind of thing ask them where they, where they put deadlifts, you know? Um, and the, the cognitive dissonance between deciding whether it goes on back day or leg day is, is always, the is always a just challenge. Blew up. Yeah. Like, what? you know, and, and the best part is that they're both wrong, you know, and so like, and they're both right. So I think you do have to, that's why sometimes I'm not a huge fan of the, uh, of like the body part splits because it, it forced you down these, overly simplistic rabbit holes uh, that that make you put exercises together or week to week or back to back that that, that you know don't don't allow for the best recovery uh, and, and distribution of, of stress and stimulus mm-hmm. and then yeah moving on to some uh, some some more in terms of yeah specifically targeting um, things what are your opinions on you know, choosing exercises based on tension curves um, and how to think about that in general as a bodybuilder. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's, I don't think I, I, people, I mean, it does matter, but it's not one of those things that I think needs to a whole, a whole huge amount of time needs to be focused on it. Most of the time. I think if you understand um, that if you train something through a full range of motion, and that somewhere along that curve is when, when the tension is going to be highest for the muscle group. Most exercises kind of take care of themselves. But it's not a bad idea to have some, some overlapping uh, exercises where, you know, the, the hardest point of the movement is at different points in the range of motion. You know, we, mm-hmm. have, we have enough data to show, like, training at longer muscle lengths with high forces probably produces greater hypertrophy. It also produces more muscle damage, though. Um, and, but that's not the only, like, you know, only consideration. Like if you look at like, you know, BFR, you can see that if you achieve fatigue, it kind of evens out in the end in some cases. So, um, yeah, I, a lot of the times I look at it from like an educator perspective, like, is this going to be a useful, 
is this something they can conceive of, think of, and go to the gym and, and, and apply it um, without making errors? And I think the, the likelihood sometimes is, is not great when you go down that rabbit hole, um, that it's going to mm -hmm. be applied properly. But uh, a lot of the times I just try to emphasize, because we, we have great data on all, for almost all the studies show that using a greater range of motion um, results in greater hypertrophy. There's one study the contrary is on the triceps and some other findings are really confusing, like the, the actual size of the, the tricep change um, and the size of the triceps uh, measurements really don't comport with the rest of the data out there. So right mm -hmm. now it's, it's one study with like an asterisk and then every other study shows greater range of motion training generally mm -hmm. results in more hypertrophy. Mm -hmm. And I can't think of a lot of times where you have a decent distribution of exercise selection and you train with a full range of motion and a sufficient proximity to failure where that doesn't take care of itself, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's a good way of thinking about it where if you try and, you know, put a pen to paper and try to plot out graphs and think too much ahead of time and just be like, I'm going to calculate the gains out of this row or something that you kind of you know, over, overthink it and, um, get lost in, in the trees. So I think that, yeah, sometimes a lot, a lot of the cases when you have those more basic premises that we talked about before, it kind of takes care of itself. With that said, I think there are some times where it's something that's worth being aware of because it, it changes maybe where you decide to end a set. So for example, on a row, uh, the row gets increasingly more difficult as it gets close to your body, right? So if you decide a like a 10 RPE or momentary mus muscular fatigue is the point of technical breakdown, which is the point when you can no longer actually touch your chest without deviating in your, in your, in your uh, back angle with the bar. If you ever like videotape yourself, do that. And as soon as you like, if you get it like an inch away and you can't do it to stop, the rep speed for 90% of that movement barely goes down at all, you know? So the, the, from an, from looking at the exercises, how close to failure was I, yeah, you were technically at a 10, but if you were to compare it to like most other exercises, it looks like you're like a five RPE, you know? So is it invalid to say, well, then I kept doing rows and just let the range of motion start to dissipate. I mean, I'm still training the muscle group. I don't think that would be an invalid way of looking at it necessarily. It might be difficult to then, progress and calculate as your your rep distance is, is decreasing throughout a set as it goes on you're doing partials but certain movements like that um where you know like basically pulling movements especially where it's not like like where you're going where the eccentric is going the other way against gravity and like with the, with a press you know when you get stuck it's coming back to you like you know very clear when when yeah. you, you you need to keep going but a row it just goes back to the ground or back to the machine um, and yeah, you couldn't get that range. So, um, it's, you know, you, you, you can make the argument that you probably need a little more variety in, in certain exercises like that, like back exercises, uh, like maybe a push down and some pull downs where the, the tension curve isn't so unfavorable against you. Um, so you can have some opportunities to, you know, train the muscle group at, you know, uh, through, through a more even strength curve, if you will. So, uh, so that you can get a little more homogenous fatigue throughout that range of motion. But, um, but yeah, I think, I think understanding that's just useful because then you understand why does everyone cheat on rows? Why do you see like that hump, you know, and as people like really just try to force and, and, and cheat on that last, last phase of that range of motion. Um, so, yeah, I mean, some people would take that a step further and be like, well, all right, I want to have like a band assisted row so that it, 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 it aids me at that point where I'm weakest or, or I'm gonna use the machines where they have that variable resistance so that it, it matches the strength curve, so it keeps it flat. Um, but the funny thing is, is when you look at the little data we have on you know, trying to, to flatten out that strength curve so it's mm -hmm. all, always consistent, it doesn't actually, the, the, if, if it was true that um, you needed to have that, that, that constant tension and really, you know, go to failure across that whole range of motion or what have you, um, we would see favoring that variable resistance. And that's actually, or constant resistance, I should say. And that's not, that's not what we observe. That, that, that typically hasn't played out as a, uh, a superior form of hypertrophy, despite it, it making sense, you know. And we would think 
because basically like accommodating resistance like bands and chains you know mm -hmm. what that does is it more it more closely matches your, your strength curve you know mm -hmm. um so like just a simple example for someone who's listening if you have a you know bands on a squat if you think about uh the squat where it's the hardest it's in the hole right where you are you're in a stretch position and your quad and glutes are not great at producing force uh and you're having to turn around after after you know lowering into the hole that's where people stick is right after right out of the hole and the reason why it's not in the hole is just because of that passive contribution uh of the stretch shortening cycle after you initially do it right or sorry you, you turn around after the eccentric so that stick in the hole okay well if i have chains on the bar when I'm in the hole, the bar is lowest to the ground. Most of the chains are on the ground. So the bar is lighter. So when I'm weakest, the bar is lighter. So it's still a sufficient challenge, but that's no longer the limiting point. And then as I stand up and I get in the more favorable biomechanical position uh, and I get more uh, more cross bridging overlap, and that length tension relationship is, 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 is superior as I'm standing up, it's getting heavier. So I'm getting challenged as I'm getting stronger and I'm getting uh, a reduction in load. So I'm more appropriately challenged when I'm weaker. Mm -hmm. Yet, data doesn't suggest that that necessarily enhances hypertrophy. So, how much that matters is is unclear. Um, so that that's another reason I don't get super super focused on this is because it's one of those things that makes sense in theory but doesn't pan out in the research. Um, so it may just not be that critically important that at every point in a range of motion, uh, you're getting you're getting challenged. Uh, it may be that with enough exercises and you know the sufficient tension at the points where they are there. Are good enough to to produce hypertrophy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's an interesting thing to um, touch on. Where, yeah, I think when you start talking about tension versus strength curves, people most commonly start talking about you know cables versus free weights, um, and then as you mentioned, chains using use of chains and bands. And I think that it's important to have some sort of concept of it. And I think there are going to be some cases where people are like, oh, like I'm totally not feeling, you know, the bottom of this triceps kickback with a dumbbell. Um, and I think there are some cases where, you know, as a general recommendation, I usually suggest that people have a little bit of a mix of just, you know, the, of cables and free weights, just because yeah. um, you, you might be able to capitalize on some parts of muscles range of motion that uh, you you may not necessarily but at the same time i think if you spend 20 minutes trying to rig up a, like chains and bands set up you know with a with a squat that uh as you said you may not you may not be able to squeeze that much out of it really that's well said um going on a little bit more and delving in along our little um tension and uh, strength curve talk. Um, what are your thoughts on just machines versus free weights? Yeah, I think, um, I think they're, they're really good complementary exercises. Um, like I think free weights for that same reason why, why I was talking about it with compound movements are, are great because they do require stabilization and moving in, in multiple planes and three dimensional space, quote unquote, of course, that's the only space you can move in, but people know what I'm saying. Um, and, uh, and and for that reason, they should definitely be included. Um, and I think you don't necessarily need to then think, oh, I'm learning how to do the power lifts necessarily. Um, but uh, even people who just have pure hypertrophy goals, I think it's, it is good to have some exercises which require a more of a kind of a full body contribution and coordination because uh, there's probably some hypertrophy there in certain muscle groups that we're not expecting or we don't, we can't quite predict. Um, so they're great. I think those are some, some key staples that you probably want to have in your program. Uh, but a leg press, man, like, like a, a row, uh, preacher curl machine, calf raise, um, I think they're leg extension, leg curl. I think there are, there are some movements that are very difficult to find a way to replicate Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, like, like how, how would I do a free weight isolated knee extension? It's, it's pretty challenging. Like you got to get like the sled out and then you're like, well, there's no real eccentric now. Like how, how effective is this? And I'm tired of backpedaling out under the room, you know? So, um, you know, you could do like sissy squats, but, um, you know, you, you may or may not find that, that that's safe or coordinated or hurt your knees more than a leg extension. 
Um, yes, I said that some things can hurt your knees more than leg extensions, despite what the internet believes. Uh, so like the nonsense. Yeah, I know. Right. Like, so there, there machines are super convenient. And I, and I think when your goal is to, is to target specific muscles and hypertrophy them, uh, that's great. You know, uh, we don't need to have an argument about what, what's functional or better for enhancing strength or what have you, because the goal is just to, to get a, a path to hypertrophy. Um, so I think, um, while you should probably have those core core group of a handful of, of compounds for the reasons I mentioned, uh, machines can be a fantastic tool that allow you to, especially for, for muscle groups where you have trouble feeling them, it allows you to limit the number of uh, degrees of freedom, if you will. So there's less things to focus on. Like, okay, if I do a free weight row, I have to really focus on keeping my torso stable so that I don't cheat as I deal with that, that strength curve, right? Mm -hmm. That is getting unfavorable as it's getting close to my body. But mm -hmm. if I get a row, now I can just pull harder and my, I have a chest, I have a chest supported row, for example. Um, and it really allows you to, you know, you can watch your butt wiggle and your feet kick up a little bit, but it's really not going to help you. So ultimately, um, any, any quote unquote cheating you do is, is ineffective. Um, so it, it allows you to, to put a little more effort into, into a movement and you might find you get better results that way. So I mm -hmm. think they're quite complementary, And in some cases they're, I wouldn't say essential, but they are, um, really convenient so that you don't have to do some crazy crap to, to train certain muscle groups, like trying to find a way to do like a leg curl or a leg extension where you don't have access to them. It looks like doing Nordics, finding a GHR, and you may or may not be strong enough to do that, uh, or, or doing sissy squats or like sled backpedaling, you know? Um, and yeah, that looks great at, at, a, at a, at a functional training place, but ultimately like, how is it so nice to sit down and just, you know, change the cams around as it lines up with your knee and, and go to town on leg extensions. Right. So I think, um, I think cables and machines are, are really helpful and they, and they also sometimes get those benefits of, of giving you a different strength and tension curve. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just imagining, um, someone just sled sled backpedaling on, on, on their, you know, back lane, <laughs> just the neighbors okay. looking at you. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And then, so I know we've touched on this a little bit in terms of um, the importance of knowing anatomy and all of that. Um, but what are your thoughts on isolating specific parts of a muscle? You know, people will commonly talk about, you know, the short head versus the long head of the biceps or your upper pecs and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, there, there's a difference between theory and application here. And um, the easy answer is that when you're dealing with muscles with multiple heads that actually have different anatomical actions, they might as well be considered different muscles. Like short head and long head of the bicep femoris is a great example. You know, only one of them does knee flexion. So you could, you could basically consider them separate muscles from the perspective of bodybuilding. Um, but like short head and long head of the bicep on the humerus, that's, that's, it. that's, that's kind of like you're curling, you're supinating. There's not a whole lot else going on there. It's, it, it's, I don't think it's very complicated how to train the biceps. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. um, uh, like, like how do I train the brachialis? Like flex your arm, you know, there's, there's really, that's all it does, you know, um, yeah. it, it's going to happen. Um, so, so some muscles, it, it just, it just does happen. You don't need to worry about it. Um, However, I think it was probably taken too far in kind of the evidence-based quote-unquote community, maybe like 10 years ago, where the, even the notion of like a, a muscle doing anything besides hypertrophying from, you know, like attachment to insertion was, was bro science. Um, and we actually have a ton of data showing that where tension is developed in a muscle is where you see more, more hypertrophy. So original hypertrophy is 100% real. Hmm. Um, and it can be manipulated with changes of grip, changes in range of motion, changes in angles, um, mm -hmm. all the above, uh, and changes in exercise selection. So we have, we actually have data showing that, uh, like incline press creates more EMG activity in the, in the upper pack, for example. Um, mm -hmm. and that there's even one study I'm aware of that, that probably indicates uh, greater hypertrophy, uh, doing incline versus flat, for example. Mm -hmm. So 
uh, I think it, it is worth, it's, it's not worth really thinking that I must do this to train this muscle group and I'm going to, you know, emphasize all these different little parts, but essentially the, um, the mindset should be, you do need to understand anatomy a little bit, but I'm going to take some, I'm going to do some different angles. You know, like some things I don't think make sense, like changing your foot position on a leg press, for example, right. uh, or, or they're not worth it. You know, like, and I mean like duck foot, I don't mean like taking a wider or closer stance, like moving your leg, but I've seen people just like, you know, change their foot position or, mm -hmm. uh, or do things where I'm just more worried about their musculoskeletal health and, and, and not sure <laughs> that's actually going to be doing anything to help them. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it is a difficult without getting into a getting bogged down in the weeds and making this podcast go over an hour and talking about all the various uh, exercises and what things do, do and don't make sense. Generally, it is true. Yes. Um, change, change of angles, grips and exercise can change the, the regional contributions of, of muscle uh, hypertrophy. Um, and some of the kind of the old adages do make sense. Like you probably want to press in multiple planes. You probably want to pull in multiple planes. Uh, and then you probably will need to do some isolation work for the lower body. Um, because some of those cardinal compounds don't train certain muscle groups, you know, um, hamstrings aren't very active in a squat, uh, even though, uh, the, the hamstrings do act as a hip extensor, they can they, 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 they counteract, the, the, the quadriceps. So they, they repeatedly have been shown not to hypertrophy for very much and not to be very active on EMG. It's primarily glutes and quads and the mm -hmm. rectus femoris, cause it's also a hip flexor, um, doesn't seem to be very active on a squat either. So what does that tell us? Well, if I was just doing squats and leg press and maybe back extensions, I probably should be doing some hamstring curls and, and leg extensions too, if I'm a bodybuilder. Um, if I'm also doing deadlifts, maybe don't need to emphasize the, uh, the hamstring work quite as much, but we also see that in, in deadlifts and hamstring curls, there's different regional activation uh, between the, uh, the upper and lower hamstring, proximal and distal. And like I said, the short head of the bicep femoris is, is the, is the knee flexor. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you, if you're not doing some knee flexion, is that getting trained? Um, so I think, I think understanding those things are important. Um, that yeah, if you understand the function of, of most of the muscles that, that can help you get there. Um, but some things are just like, like the, people have beliefs about like the lower pack and, I have to do decline to develop that. And that's probably not true. And like, I, there's a bunch of examples where there isn't really a true delineation in the muscle and the angle change doesn't even necessarily change where the regional emphasis is uh, based on what people might say or think. Like for example, wide grip pull-ups are for width and rows are for thickness. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's true. There's no reason to believe that both of them uh, are, are, are doing shoulder extension and training the lats. Um, so, you know, like, like just cause you take a wide grip doesn't mean it's going to make you wider. That's kind of like that level of analysis is, is, logic, is insufficient. Though. Yeah, it's, it's true. Right? So, so yeah, there, there's, there's a number of times it's wrong, but the, the fundamental principle of regional hypertrophy is a thing and can be manipulated is not wrong. It's just that most people don't know how to manipulate it, and get it done. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's great. The number of myths that are getting busted right now is Strong. insane and uh if anyone else wants more myths busted should check out eric's books the muscle and strength pyramids so the those very pointy things that we were alluding to earlier so if you you know want a pointed analysis of how to get stronger and bigger make sure you check that out thank you going on a little bit more to just um zooming out more and talking about exercise variation good question um, how many movements should people be incorporating for a muscle group? That's a great question. And we, and we've, we, we definitely know that a super narrow exercise selection is probably inferior. There's actually a couple of studies now, uh, one that just came out, uh, in July of last year, uh, by D'Souza, uh, and then one that came out, uh, before that, um, not, not by disease. I'm sorry. I, I got the name wrong on that one. Um, there is a study by, God, I'm forgetting the name of it. It's going to kill me where they did Smith machine squats only, or they compared a bunch of other ones. It'll come to me. 
but we I think there's there's two studies I'm aware of um, where they looked at either the use of a singular exercise or multiple exercises to train uh, different muscle groups. Um, and they found that there was more robust and I would say complete hypertrophy across all, all the muscle groups um, when, when, when training in that manner uh, with, with more, more exercises than one. So essentially, yes, if you want to hypertrophy all the muscles for like, say the squat, the squat's probably the best exercise to do that. But bodybuilders aren't, aren't trying to get really good at squats. They're trying to make their quads huge and they use squats to emphasize that. So having a, a really narrow exercise selection is not the best way to do that. Um, and I found the, I found the studies, Fonseca, <laughs> nice. it was killing me. I couldn't deal with it, uh, not remembering it. So yeah, Fonseca and colleagues, what they did, it was 2014 and they had one group doing all of their volume on Smith machine squats. And then another group did Smith machine squats, deadlifts, lunges, and something else. I can't remember what all the different exercises were, but there was four versus one exercise. And while you saw similar global quadriceps hypertrophy, if you looked at the individual heads of the quadriceps, you saw more uniform hypertrophy in the group that did more exercises. So nothing was left out essentially. Um, and that has been uh, replicated in, in a different manner recently uh, by Vons, uh, I, I'm probably going to mispronounce it by Vasconcelos Costa. So Costa and colleagues. Um, so it's been shown multiple times now that uh, you probably need some degree of exercise variety. Uh, you don't want to simply have uh, just like one exercise per muscle group. That's probably fine from like, like if you're a football player and trying to get bigger, like squats is your main quadriceps exercise. That's fine. You know, mm -hmm. um, but when you're trying to get a, a bodybuilding versus a hypertrophy program, there needs to be some degree of, uh, of variety. On the flip side, though, variety doesn't mean randomization, and it doesn't mean constantly changing. Uh, and it doesn't mean that we need to emphasize like muscle confusion. Uh, there's a uh, like, there, there's a known, uh, no, a known problem with being in the like the learning phase of doing an exercise. Like if mm -hmm. you actually swap exercises out so much that you don't become uh, an, an effective like practitioner, or, you know, you don't need to be like the master of squats, but you need to be like a jack of all trades for exercises as a bodybuilder. Mm -hmm. So there was a study by uh, Chilibeck and colleagues in the late nineties where they had bench press, leg press and bicep curls. And they looked at changes in strength and hypertrophy at a pre, a mid and a post test over 20 weeks in untrained women. So they went from basically untrained to novice because 20 weeks is a long time. That's like, you know, five months. Um, and at the midpoint, they got stronger on curls, leg press, and, and, uh, and bench, but they only saw hypertrophy in the biceps. So there was no hypertrophy in the muscles of the trunk or the legs yet. Hmm. Uh, and that's because these are compound exercises. They require intramuscular coordination, and it takes more time. And they only saw hypertrophy in the trunk and the legs after the full 20 weeks of training them. So the idea was, is that while you're st still learning the basics of a, a more complex movement, you're not able to actually stimulate the musculoskeletal system to, to really, you know, induce hypertrophy. Most of the strength gains you're making are coordination and motor learning. Mm -hmm. um, and then once you get a, an adequate level of coordination and motor learning, you actually can overload yourself. So, you know, if you're rotating in, you know, like variations of squats and deadlifts and and other compound free weight movements, like every cycle, like every three weeks, that might be too frequent. You probably want to have some staples that you're at least doing, you know, once a week or once every two weeks, or maybe if you have shorter mesocycles, like three week blocks, like every other block or something like that. Um, essentially, you want to become a proficient weightlifter uh, so that all the movements you do don't have this recurring learning effect. Uh, that, that would actually delay the effectiveness. And a, a good way to know whether this is happening is do you make rapid strength gains? You know, like, do you come in the first time, like, let's say you just don't use uh, high bar squats very often or low bar squats. Let's say you just don't use squats. You normally like a, a leg press person. You bring them in every, every once in a while. And mm -hmm. the first week you squat like 135 and then the next week you're up to like 225. That's, you know, you, you didn't gain that much muscle that week. That, that's probably just you figuring out how to do a squat again. So you should pr probably be seeing like very steady, small increases in, uh, in, in load or the number of reps you can perform 
um, to know that, okay, this is actually, I was able to actually efficiently stimulate myself that last time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good way of thinking about it. Um, and yeah, when people, you know, start off in bodybuilding, they hear about all about muscle confusion and they feel like that they need to switch things up all the time, but yeah, there is a learning curve and there's a few other things to keep in mind. Um, what would you say is the, how should, how should people think about swapping out exercises in terms of like the upper limit of how long to keep something in a program for? Yeah, I think um, for isolation movements, they can do it honestly whenever they want. Like if, if you had a set, if you did tricep pushdowns last week and you came in today and that was bobbing your elbow and you decided to go to overhead dumbbell extensions, I wouldn't care at all, to be honest. Um, I don't think that makes a difference. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that, that is even backed up by that study I just quoted. Like these novices saw bicep growth in the first 10 weeks of training. It's not hard to figure out how to flex your elbow. Mm -hmm. So I think for, for isolation movements and machine movements and things that are not maybe compound machines, but the more simple the movement, the more or less, the, the less technically demanding it is, you can swap it out uh, more. Um, you still want to be able to track progression. So it becomes a logistical issue rather than a um, ensuring it induces hypertrophy. But like, if you do this exercise like every third week or randomly in your program, um, do you have a way of actually seeing where you were last time and ensuring progression? And are you going to progress on it? Um, I would say for compound movements, I would keep them stable within mesocycle at the very least. Mm -hmm. um, and if it's a compound movement that has a significant learning effect, it should, probably shouldn't be gone for more than one mesocycle. Like there's nothing wrong. Like if you're beat up from squats and deadlifts, take them out for three weeks. That's great. You know, bring them back in next, next mesocycle and you can do uh, you know, back extensions and, and leg press and to, to let your joints recover. Nothing wrong with that. I don't want mm -hmm. people to think like, I can't go a week without squat. But, mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, um, if you leave squats out for multiple months and you come back, you can expect to have to, 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 to redo some of that learning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's good. Um, and yeah, I guess it's a good way to think about it as sort of having a pool of exercises that you find out work best for you and having some variation in between them, but sort of having those staples largely in the picture. Absolutely. That's well said. Yeah. So yeah, I think we've covered a lot and people are, are going to get a lot of value from this. Lots of myths busted and lots of bodybuilders running to the forums to, you know, <laughs> vent about what Eric said about, you know, changing grit widths and wider grit widths. Just not here to, for to lats. Oh man. Crush, crush dreams and, and cause drama. That's, that's all I so yeah. Anyways, wrapping up with a fun question as an influencer, Eric, what are your current goals on social media? On social media, it's, it's to basically uh, keep people informed of like actual content. <laughs> so I'm not someone who produces a lot of content for social media. Most of the time I'm doing exactly what Instagram doesn't want me to do, which is to say, Hey, listen to this podcast or Hey, go read this article or, Hey, um, check out this, this, this thing we're doing or, or this, uh, this free issue of mass, go, go to this other website, get off the platform, download a PDF <laughs> yeah. and read it or, or go into iTunes and, and listen to this two hour thing. So I, um, I know it's not, it's not the best way to do it. Like if I really wanted to maximize my, my following, it would be, uh, to, to try to put out like really good content for Instagram. But I think that the platform's inherently limited, you know, and, um, you know, what I, what I do as, as, a, as a scientist and, and, and a quote unquote science communicator um, requires more depth than that. Um, and if, you know, someone's on, on Instagram just to get you know, green checks or, or, or red X's over, over exercise form, then <laughs> they're probably not coming to me for that anyway. So that, I don't see that as an issue, but yeah, generally it's, uh, it's, it's a nice way to, 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 to communicate. I, I have done more uh, like IG lives on there and answer questions. I think Q and A is great on social media that, that allows you to, 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 to give people content that is useful um, and helpful and can have an appropriate level of depth to the question um, without necessarily uh, being limited by the platform or ask people to leave it, which typically nerfs your, your engagement. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's definitely challenging 
when you're trying to go on Instagram and actually try and give people like meaningful, you know, deep content, especially coming from a science-based background. So yeah, I like, I like how your social media is sort of a hub of, you know, where people can go there and find other sources. So, and yeah, I think in a lot of ways, I try and do that as well through this podcast and, you know, connecting people with the, the resources that matter. So absolutely. That being said, I think we'll wrap this up. Uh, where should people find you, Eric? Well, thanks again for having me on. Always good discussions. And uh, you can find me at 3dmusclejourney.com along with the rest of the crew. There's links to the, the pointy objects that I sell as books there. There's links to monthly applications and strength sport if you want to read about science regularly. We've got our uh, anniversary sale going on right now. It's the, the lowest price it, it ever is. And that's going on through uh, May 4th, I believe. So hopefully this podcast comes out before then, or you're just going to be disappointed by hearing about it. But that's... Uh, those are the main places. And then I'm also on Iron Culture Podcast. And uh, and then you can follow me at Helms3DMJ if you want to have me tell you to get off Instagram and go watch, read, or listen to something. Great. So we'll put those links in the description. Thanks, for, thanks again for being on, Eric. My pleasure, man. That's all for now, guys. Thanks for listening. I am available on a very limited basis for one-on-one -on -one coaching. I'm not cheap, but if you are really serious about taking your physique to the next level, DM me the word coaching on Instagram. For more science-based bodybuilding content, look up Dr. Swole on YouTube, and we'll see you next time.